0: If you would turn in your Bibles to First Corinthians 10 as we continue on um, going through these things and uh, going through the book of First Corinthians and uh, listening to God's Word. You know, I'm always thankful that um, on a Sunday morning it's not dependent on me. <laughs> it's dependent upon God's Word. Um, when we get caught up um, worrying about ourselves or worrying about the pastor, um, we've lost sight of uh What God really wants. And uh, we once again get to hear God's word. And I'm going to start by reading the scripture passage today. And you may remain seated out of respect to God's word. But we continue on from last week and begin at verse 14. And go, go down there through verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 10. So reading in Jesus' name. Paul writes here, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a participant. Sorry, is not a participation in the blood of Christ. Sorry, I did that wrong. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I, I, imply, that what, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? As we begin and we look at this portion of Scripture, we're going to catch the main point here in just a bit, but even before that main point hits here, it says, um, he says, Beloved. He talks to them. As the beloved of God, he wants them to know that God loves them so much, he's reminding them of that aspect as he begins. So he says to them, beloved, and the main point is very clear, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. That's going to be the main point through all of this. We never lose sight of it as we go along. It's kind of what he's been talking about all through this chapter and the chapter before. And, and, and more rightly here, we could do it with the actual language is keep fleeing from idolatry. It's got the sense of keep on doing it with the present tense that's there. Idolatry is quite a thing. It's easy for us in, in, in our world to be a little dismissive of the problem of idolatry in America because we look at other countries and we look over at India, for instance, with all of its Hinduism. And you may have heard over the years, they have 330 million gods. Um, That was done a few years ago. They probably have way more than that. Because each person has different gods and can do the different things. But there's plenty of gods for everybody. They've put new gods on their shelves all the time. And there's one point whatever three billion people there is over there. And they have all these different gods. But if we're honest and understand what an idol is, we have just as many in the United States, don't we? Maybe more than they do. Um, one pastor said this. He said, When I was on one of my Bible tours in Egypt, he said I purchased a large carved replica of a black scarab known as the dung beetle. Um, I purchased it to put on my secretary's desk to remind her to, to bug any anytime she needed me to. I mean to bug me anytime she needed to. But the ancient Egyptians worshipped the scarab, the large beetle that rolls a ball of dung and lays its eggs inside it and then pushes the ball along the ground. Now, sounds a little foolish to do that, right? But then this pastor put this down. He said, yet, yet what we worship is often just as odd. I've watched guys prioritize their time, money, passion, and energy into knocking a little white golf ball into a hole in the ground. As few hits as possible. He said, I wonder what the ancient Egyptians would think of that. (laughs) The great German reformer, Martin Luther, said this. He said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that's really your God. Your functioning Savior. Functional Savior. Augustine, the church father back from the 4th century, said, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using the one who ought to be worshipped. To make use of God in that way. See, the vital truth and the vital fact that Paul is bringing out here is not merely emphasizing with his own authority. He's not just saying, flee idolatry because I'm saying so. He's not just getting the Corinthians to do that because they they think that Paul thinks they should do that. Paul's not asking for blind obedience and God never asks us for blind obedience. He wants us to obey him as a result of true and thorough conviction that God is God and he's the one who has come so paul says this flee idolatry and then he says i speak to sensible people he's putting it in their court i speak to you as though you're wise you're understanding literally the word here to make you're able to make a decision you can make a decision about this. You're able to judge this in an intelligent manner and be able to do that. The, the commentator Lenski puts it very well as he looks at them and relies upon them. He, he says here, the question which Paul now asks brings out the vital facts because he takes it and just asks them questions. All of them are plain and all of them are undisputed, these facts On the basis of these, Paul wants the Corinthians to make a definite decision on their own account. Sensible Christian people will not only at once give the self-evident answers to these questions, and thus the title of this message, the expected answers to these questions, but they will also perceive the force of these answers as far as conduct is concerned. And so what does Paul do? He asks a couple questions. And he expects a certain answer. The way these are written is expecting a positive or a negative answer. In our first case, we're going to see very clearly that it's expecting a positive answer. He says, is not the cup of blessing? And he uses the word participation here. That's what they've put in. You know what the better word here is? Communion. Is not the cup of blessing a communion in the blood of Christ? The word in the Greek is koinonia, and I'm not saying that so that you know I know Greek. But that word koinonia means communion, fellowship, partaking together in. Is not the cup of blessing a communion in the blood of Christ? That cup of blessing that Paul would be referring to ties together with the third cup in the Passover. It ties together with the ending as they're getting close to the end of things at the Passover because the fourth cup was left alone because the fourth cup only takes place at the end of time. But to take part in that, Jesus would have used that cup to institute the Lord's Supper. It's going to be very clear here that he's referring to the Lord's Supper. When we're in the Lord's Supper, it's communing in the blood of Christ. It's a communion, fellowshipping together, but it's more than that. It's the true body and blood of Christ. And we could go into a lot of different things. But he does that with the cup. I I think of um, a sales representative. He he says this story. He was driving home when he saw a group of young children selling Kool-Aid on the corner. You ever see that happen? And and the price was 75 cents. So he stopped by. He uh, bought the Kool-Aid. And they gave him the cup filled with Kool-Aid and they sat there and and the the key to this was he was intrigued as he did this. He handed the boy the dollar and the, the children gave him the right change. They rifled through their cigar box that they had until they finally came up to crack him out. And then the boy came with the change and he stood by the side of the car and he asked Carl if he was finished drinking. Just about, said Carl, and Carl said, why? The boy said, well, that's the only cup we have, and we need to stay in business. (laughs) The cup of blessing that we have when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper is the cup that we have from Christ. It's a gift that he's given to believers. And then he asks that question, is not the bread we break a communion in the body of Christ? The expected answer here, of course, is yes, it is. Yes, it is. Today, we get to take part in that, don't we? We come as sinners in need of God's grace. (laughs) And Jesus has given us this wonderful gift to believers (laughs) To come as we are, to be strengthened, to not be living in idolatry as we come, but to come as we are. And then, after the expected here and the definite yes that we have with regards to things, it says there in that next verse, in verse 17. For we, excuse me, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of that one bre- Of the one bread. Paul takes that jump and, and he reminds them we are. Is the, he uses that idea of the one bread to be the one body. And who is the body here? Jesus Christ. And who is the head of the body of believers? <laughs> Jesus Christ. We're one body. And he brings that out to them again as we should go forward. And then he takes the opportunity and he jumps ahead. and He says, are not those who eat of the sacrifices? Go back to the Old Testament when they were eating the sacrifices and when the sacrifices were made, were they not participating? And probably a better word here. Were they not communing in the altar? And again, as he asks that question, were they not fellow partakers? Were they not communing in the altar? The expected answer is, yes, they were. And he's just bringing out that fact again, that truth of what God has given. But he also is getting them to think about the situation they're in. Because remember, the Corinthians were struggling with the fact of eating food that had been offered to idols. But what Paul does in a wonderful way, and God has him do, is bring them back to the truth. Now they might have been thinking at this point, Paul, are you saying that when we eat of that things, we're partaking in that? And they might have been thinking, Oh man, is this? There's the seriousness of it. But Paul immediately snuffs out one thing. He snuffs out the thought that they think that these idols then are real as well. Because if they're real, then they're participating. And it it would make so that Paul is saying that those idols are real. And Paul reminds them very quickly after that next yes. If you look at those verses in verses 19 and 20, Paul says, do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? He says, no. He's done the assumed answers here so far that they would get, but he's making sure they remember this part. No, I'm not saying that. The sacrifices of of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. (laughs) Those are three key points. That first one, is an idol or a sacrifice to an idol anything? The real answer is no. Because those idols aren't real. (laughs) They aren't true. A teacher was asking her students, her preschool students, what religious objects they had in their home. One boy answered, we have a picture of a woman with a halo holding a baby and every day my mother kneels to it. The next little girl said, we have a brass statue of a man seated with crossed legs and a Chinese face and every day my parents burn an incense stick to it. And then the third boy piped up and he said, in the bathroom we have a little platform with numbers on it and every day my mother stands on it first thing in the morning and yells, oh my God. The concept of idolatry is unreasonable. It's nothing new. If you read in Isaiah 44, God has Isaiah write about the man who cuts down a tree. And he uses half of the tree to burn wood to eat his food and to heat his house. And he takes the other half of the tree and he makes an idol out of it. And he can't help but wonder, the man can't help but wonder if he's used the wrong half of the tree for the idol or not. We're caught up in so many different things today, even the religious things. (laughs) An idol is truly, in that true sense, nothing. And Paul brings that out. But he does point out the seriousness of this nothingness. He says, but... It is an offering to demons. It seems harsh, doesn't it? But what is the opposite of what God's desire is? Satan wants to deceive us and to keep us away from God. So anything that keeps God from being first in that true sense of the word becomes demonic because it keeps us from God. The religious gods of this world are still used um, by Satan to d- control lives. Um, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses um, are all wonderful deceptions that Satan uses um, to control men. Um, They're not always expressed spiritual attacks, so to speak, to control people by possession or oppression by demons, as we read about in Scripture, although that's very real too. But rather it's that subtle backdoor approach, isn't it? To get us to not trust in God. And the idols that ensnare us can be a lot of different things. They may not necessarily even be religious Money and work and shopping and possessions and good things like family, even ministry and even service can become. I mean, think of the Pharisees. The spiritual disciplines became more of what they worshiped rather than God. They can steal our hearts away from Christ. And so Paul has this plea with them. He says, I don't want you to be participating with demons. Probably a better word here would be, I don't want you to be communicants with demons. (laughs) And then he says that verse, and it's up on the screen now um, with regards to things. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. (laughs) I'm going to go back to that as we close out. But let's jump down to the last part because he asked those two questions and he does some things in regards to that. But before I do, I just, I throw another thing out to you. We get caught in superstitions too, don't we? There was a man who was, a pastor who was at McDonald's when the woman ahead of him was very, became very upset and she said, quick! She told the clerk, add something to my order. And usually when somebody wants another sandwich or an extra order of fries, they're, they're a lot calmer about it. But this lady was just, add something to my order, quick, 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 quick! And uh, so he craned his head forward to see what was going on and the cash register told the whole story. Her food bill came to $6.66. The clerk suggested an apple pie. The woman blurted right away, yes, 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 let's do it. By the Bible case she carried, he said, I assumed her to be a believer. I thought, does she really think a $6.66 purchase will put her in hell? And then she said, phew, that was close. I don't want any bad luck. My cousin once bought something for $6.66 and she got awful sick and had the worst luck. Perhaps you've never thought about it, but we live in a very superstitious culture, don't we? You know that uh, the number 13, I mean, there's no 13th floors on a lot of high-rise buildings. Um, black cats crossing your path. Four-leaf clovers. Crossing your fingers, breaking a mirror is bad seven years of bad luck. And you all know about knocking on wood, right? That all comes from knocking the evil spirits out of the wood with things. Superstition is believing in something that you know is impossible, yet you believe it anyway. I don't want you to be communing with demons, Paul said. And you can't take the Lord to the table of the Lord and the table of demons at the same time. And he says the question, he says, shall we keep provoking the Lord to jealousy or are we stronger than the Lord is? And the expected answer here is an obvious no. Our goal in, in, in things is not to try and make the Lord more jealous. God is a jealous God. We read that. The jealousy of God, though, is that He wants you so much to know Him and to worship Him alone because He has what you need. And He knows the foolishness of the other things. God created us. God's the one who gave us an eternal soul. When we turn from Him, God so wants us to be with Him. So by doing that thing that Paul's reminding them, don't don't do it. (laughs) Be careful with it. He's told them before, and by the way, we know that I mean it is nothing really, because it is to idols and things, but he's saying be careful. (laughs) And he's saying more than be careful. He's really saying don't do it. (laughs) Seek for God and God alone. (laughs) Um a pastor wrote this. He said, I went to Japan years ago and we went with friends, and I was fascinated by the Buddhist temples. You see that big picture there? There's other ones. That's one from Japan. And they're beautiful places. The architecture was amazing, but the intricate design of all the idols was fascinating. But he said, What ruined it for me was when we went sightseeing with some non Christian Japanese friends. To us, the idols were not a god at all. However, our Japanese friends tried to get us to do several simple rituals that involved calling on the gods. We refused to do it. It made for an awkward moment. (laughs) But he said, I decided I had enough of temples and would never visit again with non-Christians. The message we were sending was that their god was okay too. (laughs) He said, I've been back with other Christian friends and I now see it all in a new light. I see the beautiful architecture, the intricacy, but the idols become menacing to me now. And you can almost feel the presence in the room. And he says, I have a sense of what Paul means when he says he does not want us to participate with demons or to commune with them. So, if we jump back to verse 21 and close things off, Paul says, You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. It's not a matter of judging what we do here. But if we're going to try and live in both sides of the world and the things of God, in old church speak, we used to talk about straddling the fence we're going to try and straddle the fence and live in both sides, what is that going to do? Are you and I two-timing God? God wants us to trust Him. That's what He brings to them. I think of the words Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You're going to love the one or hate the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can try and straddle the fence. (laughs) But straddling the fence just doesn't work. To be at two tables at once. Suppose two people invite you to dinner. One of them you have to turn down. Or even worse, you get invited to two weddings on the same day. You have to make a choice, don't you, at that point. You can't go to both tables. And that's what many of the Corinthian Christians were trying to do. And I dare say that you and I probably at times try to do the same thing. May we rely on the Lord and trust in Him. And as we come to the Lord's Supper today, it's provided for us in a very wonderful way. We live in that culture that's the truth is denied let's just say it and the lie gets embraced <laughs> homosexuality is nothing more than an alternative lifestyle the people who do bad things aren't bad people they're just victims of society that it, it's more important in our world sometimes to save the whales than to save millions of unborn babies Many people say God isn't real and Satan is a quaint looking dude with that sly smile and the pitchfork. And the external activities here, they really matter. We do need to have the Lord help us to live our lives. To live our lives for Him. Not in our own strength and not to condone the activities that are wrong, but to respectfully point people to what God says. To realize that that person is a soul, just like you and me, an eternal soul, everlasting, (laughs) that will live forever. And we want them to know the truth. But to share that truth in the love of God. And it's not a bad thing to do a spiritual checkup now and then, is it? and even before we come to the lord's table we're told to examine ourselves and in examining ourselves we see that we need god and to come to the table lord take me as i am i'm yours heavenly father um Thank you for being the truth. Thank you for coming to this earth. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood and going to the cross. And thank you that that's offered as a gift. And as we prepare to come to your table, and just this isn't a ritual. We this is a something you've given us, Lord. Thank you that we can be reminded. Yes, but more than that, that we can partake, we can commune and receive your true body and blood today. And then, Lord, help us to walk, to live, to live knowing that you're God and to trust you so that you can direct our paths. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.